Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Luke 8, 4 through 15. And when a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed and he sowed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the bird, birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into the good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, see, (laughs) seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they have gone on their way, they are choked out by the cares And riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for those, or as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear the fruit with patience. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Um, I understand it's Parents Weekend at Furman, so welcome to all of you parents. Go dense, right? Um, glad you're here, and uh, yeah, thanks for being here. So my interesting fact this morning is that on this weekend, a year ago, Lacey and I uh, joined the church as, as members, and our two children, Robert and Lila, were, were baptized. Um, and uh, since then, I've been given, given the opportunity to come on staff as a pastoral intern for about 10 hours a week. And I, I just wanted to thank you all for giving me that opportunity. Um, it's really humbling for me to be a part of our church in this way. And uh, I just wanted to thank you for how kind and encouraging you all have been to me in that. Um, it's, been, it's just been really great. And so I appreciate it. Um, and beyond my internship, uh, Lacey and I came to Grace and Peace really craving some things that we've found just kind of quietly present here, Um, like a movement toward simplicity in our lives and contemplation and deep friendships and advocacy. Um, You're you're a beautiful group of people, and uh, we just are thankful to have been welcomed by you over the past year. Uh, Tim just finished going through... um, four weeks of uh, talking about our mission as a church, and uh, now we're going to switch gears for the fall and take a look at several of Jesus' parables as told by uh, Luke in his gospel. 
Um, and Tim can fill this in more when he gets back, but um, as you know, we spent about a year and a half in the Gospel of John or more, um, which incidentally doesn't contain any parables. So um, we wanted to take a look at some of these parables that have such a key role in the other three Gospels and uh, do that uh, about up until uh, Thanksgiving. So, um, so, so for my part today, I just wanted to help kick off this series on the parables by looking at the parable of the sower, which was uh, just read for us. And then just by looking through the lens of this parable, I want to try to answer the question, what are parables for? What are parables for? Um, Several years ago, I visited uh, the MoMA, Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Um, And I have to tell you, it was not super fun for me. Um, My reactions to most of the pieces I saw ranged from uh, being dumbfounded that a piece of string tied to the wall can be considered a contribution to the arts to um, really being horrified by a film that involved a barbed wire hula hoop and bare skin. So just, yeah. Whew, that was awful. I'm still still struggling with that one. Um, And though I assume most of us aren't horrified when we come across Jesus' parables, uh, I think a lot of us probably do feel a little bit like I did at the moment. They often feel a little too cryptic to be of much spiritual use to us. And if I, think, I think if I went back to the moment now, I would at least try to engage the art instead of trying to uh, define it, if that makes sense. I would try to perceive what it was doing to me more than concentrating on what kind of meaning I could impose on it. I would also try desperately to avoid, avoid barbed wire, of course. Um, but my goal today is to help us think about how to engage Jesus' parables Instead of trying to unlock the meaning behind each of them or um, unmask all the mystery and and the cryptic feeling that's there. I believe that we should be trying to perceive what these pieces of art, what these parables are doing to us and what they're especially revealing about us. I think that parables are Jesus' invitation to us to be quiet and to be still and to contemplatively self-assess our relationship to the good news of the kingdom. The parable of the sower may not provide a key to unlocking the meaning behind all the parables, but I think it does offer a map for how to engage them, and that's what I want to reflect on this morning. So let me pray for us real fast before we dive into that. Father, these are um, your people, we are your people, and we've uh, gathered together to um, hear from you. And so uh, we just ask that you would allow that to happen through your spirit this morning, um, that uh, you'd be able to work through um, somebody like me to uh, say things that are really from your spirit. Um, we need uh, your miraculous hand in order to, for that to happen, so we ask for that now. In Jesus' name, amen. During the Civil Rights Movement, Dr. Martin Luther King was a proponent of what he called nonviolent direct action. In a letter from Birmingham Jail, he offered a kind of purpose statement for nonviolent direct action, which is what, in this case, got him arrested in Birmingham. And here's what he said. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and establish such creative tension that a community that has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. I have earnestly worked 
and preached against violent tension. But there is a type of constructive, nonviolent tension that is necessary for growth. The goal of Dr. King's nonviolent demonstrations was to establish creative tension in a community. And hopefully through that tension, the community could wake up to the reality of its situation. People could wake, wake up to the reality of who they were so that they could deal with their own discrimination and learn to grow into something that was more in line with love and justice. And he was arguing that we need this kind of tension to be made aware of realities that tend to fly beneath our radar. We need this tension to draw out what is hidden about us and lead us toward change. But if there's something that's impeding us from receiving the truth about ourselves, we're condemned for having seen the truth so dramatically displayed and turning away from it. And I can't think of a better illustration for the purpose of Jesus' parables. Our gospel reading this morning explained how Jesus told parables so that some would see and not perceive, would listen and not understand, but then for others they would contain the secrets of the kingdom of God. Meaning that they're cryptic by definition, but not meaning that they aren't meant to be heard and listened to and understood. They only are misunderstood and they only remain hidden from us if there are things that are impeding us from hearing what they're saying. Having ears to hear is about being willing to place ourselves in the midst of the tension that parables create. Embracing and contemplating that tension to the point that we're laid bare before the reality of the kingdom of God and are transformed by it. So what does it look like to listen to Jesus and his kingdom in this way? So we enter the parable of the sower. This parable is found in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all three, it's accompanied by Jesus' explanation of what the purpose of parables is. Mark even says that Jesus says to his disciples, if you can't understand this parable, how can you understand any of the other ones? And this isn't because the parable of the sower is necessarily the easiest to interpret, but because in some way it interprets all the other parables. And I would just argue that Jesus is, is helping us understand what it looks like to listen to his parables and engage them, how to interpret his kingdom. And that's why this parable has such a unique status. So how does this work? Well, surely in the last year or so, uh, you've taken at least one personality test, right? Or at least you've heard about someone describing to you something about the nine Enneagram types or the five love languages or Myers-Briggs or Strengths Finders, which Hogwarts house you belong to. Um, and when, when you hear these things, the first question that you always ask is obviously, um, well, what type am I? Who am I? Am I a seven on the Enneagram? I'm not. Maybe I'm an INFJ. Could I cut it in Gryffindor? Do you think I could get there? We self-assess in these situations. We take the time to try to understand more clearly who we are. So when Jesus describes seeds falling on different soils, we are led to ask, which sowing is reflective of me and my situation? So let me just offer a brief explanation of Jesus' personality assessment test. First, the seeds fall on four different soils, right? But there are really only two kinds of soil in the end. Soil that produces fruit and soil that doesn't. There's no hierarchy of unfruitful soil. Uh, the thorny ground isn't better than the walking path, for example. 
None of the three, quote-unquote, bad soils produces fruit. So why does Jesus take the time to detail characteristics of each one? And while there are probably several correct answers to that question, I just want to offer this possibility. That by nature, each of us reflects one of the three unfruitful soils. Maybe one predominantly, uh, maybe another in different seasons and situations. And Jesus is inviting us to identify who we are and thus to better understand what is keeping us from receiving the good news of Jesus right now. What is keeping it from bearing fruit in me? No one embodies fruitful soil by default. We're all unfruitful soil that need tilling and digging and weeding, all of which are painful, all of which are full of tension, but God willing, it's a creative tension. And it's dwelling in this tension that tears open the soil so that it can hear the word and make it fruitful. So where are you in the parable of the sower? Maybe this morning as you worship and hear again the good news of Jesus, your life is reflective of the seed that fell along the path. Jesus said this describes people who hear the word, but they don't understand it, and birds swoop down and devour the seed. For these people, it's as if the event of hearing the word never even happened. The soil is packed down so hard that the seed just bounces off and makes no difference in the heart of the hearer. So walking paths form because they are walked on over and over again until the grass dies and the soil hardens. This soil is in such constant use that it doesn't have any tenderness to it, no receptivity. We could, we could say that these are people who believe the lie that they are what they do. And so their lives are characterized by ceaseless activity. Maybe it's a, a job that you can't stop thinking about or the children that leave you little time. And no matter how hard you work, you never do enough. These are people who have a sense of urgency about everything. And in every moment, they're in somewhere on the spectrum of a fight-or-flight mode. This might also be the person who believes not just I am what I do, but I am what has been done to me. The images of seeds being trampled underfoot or being devoured by birds are violent images. This may be the person who is in such pain that the idea of being lifted up in joy by hearing the gospel, it just seems impossible. It might be the person with PTSD or the abused person who can't see any definition of themselves that's not overwhelmed by the violence that's been done to them. If your life is defined by doing, by busyness, by constant urgency, or by, by trauma, maybe, there's simply no place in your wounded and calloused heart for the word to sink in. But be assured that Jesus is not condemning you for this. He's saying that if you are to bear fruit, the constant activity and the energy will have to stop. Through this parable, Jesus is inviting you to rest and be still. So for the person who believes that they are what they do or they are what has been done to them, there might be nothing more painful than just stopping and being still. But there will also be nothing more liberating and transformative than knowing that God loves you and is pleased with you right now in this present moment when all that you are offering is stillness. Because at the very center of who you are, there's dwelling this steadfast love of God and nothing you can do and nothing that's ever been done to you can change that. For the seed that fell along the path, we need to find rest and stillness and the gift of Sabbath 
and the gift of ceasing to try to prove ourselves by our actions and remembering who we are beneath all the things that we do. Maybe this morning as you worship and hear again the good news of Jesus, your life is reflective of the seed that fell in rocky soil. Jesus said this describes people who receive the word with joy, but when they encounter some form of suffering or persecution, they fall away. Their soil is crammed with rocks, and they don't have the depth to endure hardship. We can call these people shallow. Externally, they give the appearance of vitality, but they don't have the inner depth to sustain that portrayal of themselves. These are the trend followers who latch on to the newest spiritual fad, always scrambling to keep in the know and be at the center of what the crowd is getting high on. Ultimately, this is what it looks like to believe the lie that I am what other people think or say about me. So I'll go to the trendy church. I'll hop on board with the current hot list of spiritual personalities. I'll suddenly become passionate about the hottest button social issue of the moment. Because if I can align myself with the waves of spiritual enthusiasm, I'll be the kind of person who gets noticed and praised, friended and followed and liked all up and down the corridors of social media. But none of this stuff, which is all really fine on the surface, actually sinks down into the core of who we really are and transforms us on a deep fundamental level. We just receive it with joy until it falls under scrutiny and then it's time to bail and continue that exhausting search for the approval of other people. The word can't take root and bear fruit in people who only receive it for appearance's sake because their true devotion is to their reputation, it's not to the word. And sadly, this comes with, with it feelings of tremendous lostness and loneliness. There's no ideology, no relationship, no self-conception in which a shallow person can put down any roots. And they're therefore disconnected from everything. They're wanderers who never feel like they can come home. If your life is defined by the way others think of you, Jesus is not condemning you for this. Through this parable, he's inviting you out to secret places with him in solitude. And in this secret solitude, two things will happen. First, there'll be no one to perform for, no one to measure up to, no one's approval that you need to seek. And second, in this place where you have nothing to offer God but yourself, you'll find, to your surprise, that he likes you. When you're all alone with him, you'll find that you already have the approval you've been tenaciously trying to win from other people. Maybe this morning, as you worship and hear again the good news of Jesus, your life is reflective of the seed that fell among the thorns. Jesus said this describes people who receive the word and begin to sprout and grow, but there are other things, thorns growing up at the same time. These are worries, anxiety, and care for possessions. Anxiety comes to all of us who believe the lie that I am what I have. And if we believe this, we have to be tenacious in how we hold on to the things that we have or how we pursue the things that we don't have. We seek to secure our possessions no matter how many or how few we have, whether it's money or a spouse, knowledge, nap times, competence, skill. And if having any of these things defines who you are, then what are you if you lose them? Anxiety and worry come from the need to protect things that we know we can't keep. It's the only possible result of trying to secure stuff 
in a world where everything dies. Some of us here this morning are overwhelmed by the fear of losing the things that make up our lives or of never gaining the things that we want to make up our lives. And through this parable, Jesus is not condemning your fear, your anxiety, your depression. He's inviting you to find a quiet peace in the one who has already supplied you with everything you need. Jesus is inviting you to a place where your anxious thoughts can be quieted through silence. For some, this means choosing to not speak up um, instead of speaking up to promote yourself. For others, it means finding a place of such silence that even the noise in your mind and your heart is calmed down. For those who identify with the seed that fell among thorns, there might be nothing more terrifying, yet certainly nothing more liberating than entering into the void of silence, where the things you possess reflect their true nature of being terminal, fading away like a morning mist. In place of these fading things, in silence, you can take hold of the unfading riches of having Jesus and the inheritance that he's won for us, that is unfading, undefiled, and guarded safe in heaven for you. In stillness, the seed that fell along the path can rest in the work of Jesus and bear fruit. In solitude, the seed that fell on rocky ground can find secret intimacy and approval from Jesus and bear fruit. And in silence, the seed that fell among the thorns can quiet anxious thoughts, accept the inheritance that's been secured for them through Jesus and bear fruit. And what does it mean to bear fruit? Jesus speaks of the seed in the good soil multiplying a hundredfold because it was held fast with patience and an honest and good heart. Jesus isn't using a new metaphor here in sowing and bearing fruit. He's echoing the words of God in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden and when he cursed the ground so that from that point on the ground would work to stifle the bearing of fruit. And more broadly, the broken world around us would work to stifle goodness, truth, and beauty from growing out of God's creation. And the good soil that bears fruit is not just about individual people who have learned to listen to the good news of the kingdom. It is also a picture of the kingdom that Jesus brought in order to tear open the cursed ground and to raise life out of its death and cause it to sprout such goodness truth and beauty that even the trees of the field and the mountains and the hills cannot help but burst out in celebration as Isaiah describes, clapping their hands and singing for joy. Your trauma and endless toiling might right now hinder you from receiving this good news, but it won't always be this way. Your deep loneliness and lostness may now hinder you from receiving this good news, but it will not always be this way. Your fear and crippling anxiety might hinder you from receiving the good news of Jesus now, but it will not always be this way. And it won't always be this way because Jesus is the word who has come and broken the curse, and out of these these ashes we're all rising up with a beauty and a glory that far surpasses our sufferings. That is worth a hundred times the death we had to die to get there. So what are we to do? We're to hold fast to this good news until the resurrection that Jesus won for us comes to full fruition. Hold fast to this good news in the midst of all the brokenness that makes it hard to see. 
Hold fast to this good news by being still and knowing your God, by finding God present with you and loving you in solitude, and by hearing God's voice in your silence. Hold fast in patience, and this good news will one day bring a harvest beyond all we could hope or imagine. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for a few minutes this morning to, um, to hear you speaking to us. And thank you now for the chance to come to this table together, which is in itself a kind of parable. And hidden in it is the truth that you loved us enough to be broken for us and to bleed for us. I pray that we'd be able to enter in to the comfort that's there, to the tension that may be there for us that we'd be able to enter into the, the ways that you've been so kind and gracious and good to us, and that by being willing to enter into that place, we would be able to take hold of the promise of bearing good fruit, that we'd be able to take hold of the promise that one day you will bring a harvest out of all of our pain and suffering and toiling, and it will be worth everything that we ever had to go through to get there. So we thank you for this good news. I pray that this morning as we continue to worship, we would be strengthened and encouraged to hold fast to the good news that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.